Let me now invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll be looking this morning primarily at verses 6 through 8. But I'll start reading in verse 4 just to remind you of the context of the passage that we'll be looking at. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Reading from the inspired Word of God, so please listen with faith and reverence to the Word of God. And coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. And now he begins to give biblical support for what he said in verse 4. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and who believes in Him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. And to this, doom is in italics, meaning it's not actually in the Greek. And to this, they were also appointed. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So now Peter, having introduced the notion of Christ as a living stone in verse 4, now begins to give three Old Testament passages in support of that truth and also expanding the relevance to that, the significance to that. And in our passage this morning, verses 6-8, through Peter is primarily going to focus upon the two different responses that people make to Christ as the living stone. You either believe in Him or you don't believe in Him. And it's very significant in light of the consequences of either having faith or not having faith in Jesus Christ as the living stone. So if you look at verse 6, again, Peter refers back to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So notice what he's saying here. Uh, Basically, he's already told us this in verse 4, but now he's quoting from Isaiah, and he's telling us that God the Father laid in Zion, which is a reference to earthly Jerusalem, a choice stone, precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So again, the cornerstone is a reference to Christ. And as we saw last week, that's the cornerstone of him building the new covenant temple of God. The apostles are the foundation. We become the living stones that are built up into a holy temple. So that's kind of the idea that's being presented here. We discussed that last week. But notice again in verse 6, 
This stone is choice, it's chosen by God, it's a very special stone, and it's a precious cornerstone. It's precious because this is the only begotten Son. It's as precious to God, it's chosen by God to fulfill this ministry, to build His new covenant house, His new covenant temple. So he's very precious. So all this refers to the Father's opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ in sending Him. And then look at the end of this verse. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. So Christ as a stone is a great blessing to believers. And those who put their faith in Christ will not be disappointed. Those who do not put their faith in Christ will be disappointed. But if you put your faith in Christ, you will not be disappointed. Yes, we have our trials now. Yes, we have our earthly disappointments now. We have our frustrations. We have our pain and our sorrows. But in the end, no believer will ever be disappointed but that that they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So by faith now, we can even see that even in our trials, the hand of God is there. We can trust in His sovereignty, His good purpose. But on the last day, we will not be disappointed. So Paul again is quoting from, Peter is quoting from Isaiah 28.16. Paul quotes this same verse also in Romans chapter 9 and in Romans chapter 10. So in verse 6, this is a very important Old Testament verse to support the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessing that comes to believers. They will not be disappointed. Now, will not be disappointed is really an understatement given to us by Isaiah, which Peter quotes. Certainly, we will not be disappointed in Christ. He is perfect. His salvation is perfect. On the last day, we will stand firm in His presence, unshaken, triumphant because of what this living stone has done for us. So when he says that we will not be disappointed, that again is a bit of an understatement. But on that last day, no believer will be dishonored, will be disgraced, or put to shame, or humiliated. We will not be disappointed in any way. We will not be disappointed if we put our trust in Christ to save us. We will stand approved by His blood, His righteousness. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The entire debt of our sin has been fully paid. We are free from the judgment, the condemnation of the law. We will not be disappointed with the salvation that Christ gives to those who believe in Him. Now, if we put our trust in our own good works, our own righteousness, then we will be disappointed. If we thought we could merit heaven by our own goodness, we will be disappointed. If we thought that we could earn heaven because of our religious activities, even if they're supernatural in nature, we will be disappointed. Imagine the disappointment in Matthew 7. When Jesus says, many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, these guys thought they were saved. They were doing all these supernatural things in the name of Christ. And yet, how does the Lord respond to them? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
See, they never came to faith in Christ. They will be disappointed. They thought they were saved. They even had supernatural operations of the Holy Spirit and some common grace gift to an unbelievers. And yet they did not really know the Lord. They had never put their faith and trust in Christ alone to save them. They will be disappointed. Because ultimately they were trusting in their own works, their own goodness, their own religion to save them and not personally coming to Jesus Christ as a sinner receiving the gift of forgiveness. Those who think they can climb their way to heaven by their own goodness will be as disappointed as the lunatic who thinks that he can climb to the moon on a rope made out of sand. You'll be greatly disappointed. We believers put our trust in Christ and His sinlessness, His sacrifice, His righteousness for the full payment for our sins. It's that faith alone in Christ alone that gives us the gift of salvation. So we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's our confidence. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will not be disappointed when we stand before the Lord on the last day. But notice also in verse 7, Peter says, this precious, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, this precious value then is for you who believe. Now your translations may translate the beginning of verse 7 a bit differently. I have four examples up on the screen. The New American Standard, this precious value then is for you who believe. The ESV, so the honor is for you who believe. The honor of not being disappointed on the last day, which is probably the idea here. The ESV takes the the word precious and translates it as honor, which is valid, but applies it to our honor. The honor is for you who believe. The honor of being not disappointed on the day of judgment. Which is a bit different than the other translations. The NIV says the stone is precious to those who believe. The King James says unto you therefore which believe He, i.e. the stone, Jesus Christ, is precious. So you have all these different translations of how to interpret or translate the first part of verse 7. The New American Standard, the precious value, again, is probably, in their mind, the translators thought of the precious value of not being disappointed because of the grace that we've received from Christ. But I really kind of like the NIV and the King James Version where the, the precious thing here is not the honor we receive, but it's the preciousness of Jesus Christ. He is precious to those who believe. See, he's already been referred to as the precious stone in verse 6. So it would seem that in verse 7, Peter maybe has Christ in view. The point that he's making is that, therefore, in my view, that Christ is precious to the believer. He's precious to God the Father, verse 4, quoted in Old Testament verse 6, but he's also precious to us. He is precious to us, interestingly, 
because He is the only one who can save us from our sins. In Acts chapter 4, Peter in that particular place quotes another reference to Christ as the cornerstone. And right after that, he says this about Christ to show how precious He is. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. See, not only is Christ precious to the Father, He's precious to us. Because He's the only one that can save us from our sins and we are loaded with sin. We are guilty and vile as sinners in the sight of God. And we cannot save ourselves. I cannot in any way scrub away my sin. I can't in any way peel it off and throw it from me. I must pay the consequences. And that means I must be judged and condemned by a holy God. But Jesus Christ, God's only Son, came down from heaven, took the form of a man, lived a sinless life so He could offer Himself as our substitute and bear our sins and suffer for our sins. He's precious. No one else can do that. In all the universe, there is only one. And that's the Son of God. That's Jesus Christ. He's precious because He's the Creator of all things and we worship Him as Creator. He's God manifested in the flesh. He's Redeemer of sinners. He's the chief among ten thousands. The pearl of great price. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the unblemished and spotless Lamb of God who shed His precious blood. He's our Savior, our Master, our King who loves us with a love that will never die. He sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses, understanding our temptations. He prays for us constantly in the midst of our trials and struggles. And He's always near when we call upon Him to help us and give us aid in our hour of need. He has given us His precious promises. He's given us our precious faith. He's given us fellowship with God Glory forever. Heaven forever. He is precious to us. Because no one else can save us. No one else can give us those blessings. He is precious to the believer. And I think that's what Peter's reminding us of. And that's why he should have first place within our hearts. Because he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, nor can anybody else. Christ alone. And He should be precious to your hearts and to mine as well. Octavius Winslow said that the believer should say that I see Christ to be exactly the Christ I need. His fullness for my emptiness. His blood cleanses my guilt. His grace subdues my sin. His patience bears with my infirmities. His gentleness helps my weakness. His love quickens my obedience. His sympathy soothes soothes my sorrows. He's just the Savior I need and my words cannot describe how precious He is to me. And then he went on to say that in times of spiritual struggle and relapse, the believer should see Christ as precious as well. 
the times when we stumble in sin, the times we, we backslide, Christ is precious because He is the one who restores us back into fellowship with Him. He says, how precious does Christ become as the restorer of His saints, as the shepherd that goes in quest of His straying sheep and brings it back to the fold with rejoicing. How unspeakably dear is the Savior to the wandering yet restored heart. Our backslidings are perpetual and aggravated. Our affections fickled and wayward. Our faith fluctuating. Our love waning. Our zeal flagging. Our walk often feeble and unsteady. But Jesus withdraws not His eye from His straying sheep. And in good time, He restores our soul. So Christ is precious to the believer. In the good times and in the times of struggle, in the times when we're obedient and the times we're not obedient, because He's the one that restores us. So God, make Christ more precious to our hearts so that we might say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but You? And apart from You, I desire nothing on earth. May Christ be that precious to our hearts because of who He is and what He has done for us. So Peter has laid out the blessings of those who put their faith in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. They will not be disappointed that He will be precious to them. But then he turns the focus upon those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we read this in verse 7. The last part of, second part of verse 7 and also verse 8. He says, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So now in contrast to the believer, you have the unbeliever. Christ is not precious to them. They will be disappointed and ashamed on the day of judgment. So that Christ is a stone both for the believer and for the unbeliever. For the believer, he's a stone of blessing. But for the unbeliever, he becomes a stone of crushing, as we see, we'll see in a moment in verse 8. But notice what Peter emphasizes. To those who disbelieve in verse 7, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So the first consequence of their unbelief is the very one that they rejected, they haven't gotten rid of. Because God has made him into the very cornerstone of his kingdom, the very cornerstone of his new covenant temple. So even though he was rejected, God raised him from the dead and established a new kingdom, a new temple through Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. So all the while they rejected him, they didn't believe in him, they think they're done with him, they're not. They will be disappointed in the end. Now in verse 7, just a comment on the NIV has capstone there instead of cornerstone. I think cornerstone is a better translation. 
But these builders here in verse 7, they have rejected Christ as their Messiah to build their own kingdom. But their kingdom is going to collapse. But Christ's kingdom will last forever. He's the very cornerstone. It will be built upon Christ and it will not be destroyed. In fact, in 70 AD, the Romans will totally destroy the Jewish kingdom, their city, Jerusalem, their temple. They'll totally level it to the ground. But the kingdom of Christ, the cornerstone in His church and His temple continues to expand throughout all the nations. So they will be disappointed. And, but though Christ has been rejected by men, men will not be able to get rid of Him because now being raised from the dead and exalted, He sits at the Father's right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The irony is the stone which the builders rejected will become their own judge and will reject them in the end on the day of judgment. That's the irony of it. Of course, they don't see it, nor do they believe it. But the most colossal error anybody could ever make is to reject the Son of God. And yet they do it freely. We also go on and and read in verse 8, that this rejected stone that God has raised from the dead and established as a cornerstone of His new covenant kingdom and temple and church will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who have rejected Him. Now this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. So Peter's mind is in the area of Isaiah and the Psalms. But here the unbelievers will stumble over the stone which they have rejected. So they looking for a stone to build their, their own building with. They look at Jesus Christ as a stone and they say, well, He's unworthy. So they reject Him. But later on, they're going to stumble over Him. And this is not just a stubbing of the toe like you do you know, when you get up in the middle of the night and you're going to the bathroom you stub your little toe on the bedpost or whatever. This is a face first plant stumbling in the ground. I mean, they're going to fall and not get up. So the very stone they rejected becomes a stone of stumbling. They will stumble over Christ is the idea. Now all believers, we stumble at times like Peter denied the Lord three times, but the Lord prays for us that our faith will not fail, so we rise again. But these guys, they will not rise. They stumble over the stumbling stone of of Christ. The cornerstone, they don't accept. They've rejected. They stumble over Him. They will fall and not rise again. But He's also a rock of offense. And the word rock here is different than stone. The stone, you can imagine the cornerstone is in view. That's the imagery. The main cornerstone of of, uh, the temple. But the rock of offense, the rock word here probably refers to a rocky mass or a cliff. Not a building stone, but just a big large rock. And here it's a rock of offense. They take offense at it. And the offense that they take is a reaction to Jesus Christ as a temptation for them to sin and to become an apostate. To fall away from the Lord in hostility against Christ. So He becomes a rock of offense. And they so react against the Lord Jesus 
that they totally reject Him with hostility. They're offended by Christ. He's a rock of offense to them. So Christ came as the Messiah, but they rejected Him. Christ is the only way to the Father, but they renounced Him. Christ is a truth, and they preferred to embrace a lie. They reject Him, and their hostility is very vicious so that they'll even crucify Him. So He becomes a rock of offense. He stirs up their sin nature, so in hatred, they lash out against Him. They prefer to build their house on the sand and not upon the rock of Christ. They will hate Christ so much, they will put Him to death. They will hate His followers so much. They're so offended by the Gospel that they will put the apostles in jail. They will flog them. They will threaten them. They even stoned Stephen to kill him. They went out arresting believers to persecute them, to put them to death. They were offended by Christ to such a degree that their hatred showed itself. Again, the irony is that the very stone they disobey and reject and are offended at will one day rise up and crush them to pieces. This is what Jesus said in a similar context. Notice what it says in, in 1 Peter 2.8 when it says again, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. They stumble over Him. And what this stumbling means, not only do they stumble over Christ, but ultimately Christ will come back. This is the irony. They stumble over Christ, but one day that stone they stumble over will rise up and crush them. The very stone they rejected the very stone they stumble over will rise up and judge them. This is what Jesus said, quoting these same kinds of verses about Himself being the rejected cornerstone. He says in Matthew 21, verse 44, that he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. That this rejected stone, this cornerstone, will one day rise up and fall on them and crush them to dust. And that's a reference to the coming day of judgment. So there's the irony. They're offended at Christ. But one day, Christ will be offended with them and will crush them and judge them. The reason why they stumble, we are told, let me back up here, is because they're disobedient to the Word. So now you realize that there's a heart problem here. They're disobedient to the Word and that causes them to stumble. That causes them to reject Christ because they're disobedient. Well, where does disobedience come from? It comes from the heart. Jesus says out of the heart comes all kinds of illustrations of disobedience. Murder, hatred, all those things come out of the heart. So what Peter is basically saying, they stumble over Christ, they don't believe in Christ, they reject Christ because they're disobedient. They have a bad heart. And the problem is, the people with the bad heart 
can't change their heart and make it into a good heart. It's the very thing that Jeremiah said in chapter 13, verse 23 of his prophecy. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? No. Can you change the color of your skin? Well, if you hold your breath really hard, you might turn a little shade of red, but that's that's not permanently changing your skin. Jeremiah says the Ethiopian can't change his skin. The leopard can't change his spots and turn them into racing stripes like the like a tiger maybe. Can't do that. He says, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't change your heart. Only God can change the heart. So here you've got these guys who have rejected Christ as a living stone. They haven't believed on Him. And they've stumbled and taken offense at Him. Because their heart is bad. Because they're disobedient to the Word of God. They hear the Gospel, but they disobey it. They don't humble themselves and repent and come to faith in Christ. They disobey it. So their stumbling is caused by their disobedience to the Word of God. Their disobedience to the Word of God is caused by their bad heart. And then notice there at the the last phrase in verse 8. And to this they were also appointed. Now this is where Peter gets into a bit of a a challenging phrase. To this, again the word doom is is in italics in the New American Standard, which means it's not in the Greek. So Peter's just saying, and to this they were also appointed. So again, look at the different ways this is translated. To this doom they were appointed, the New American Standard. NIV says, which is also what they were destined for. ESV, as they were destined to do. New King James, to which they also were appointed. So the word appointed can also be translated destined or predestined. It's a very strong word that's used for the activity of God. That's the way it's used a lot of times in the New Testament. This is a passive voice. So these unbelievers who rejected Christ, who stumbled over Him, took offense over Him, they were appointed. They were destined. They didn't do that to themselves. They were appointed. Passive voice. God is the one who's doing the action. They were appointed. They were destined by God for this. Now the question that's raised, then what were they actually appointed and destined to? Was it to stumble as a result of their disobedience? That would fit. That would just mean that those who in unbelief disobey the Gospel, they're destined to stumble. Or was it their disobedience that was they were destined for? So theologically, it's kind of a, a, a challenging uh, verse to try to understand correctly. The first thing we can observe about this, let me go back to the New American Standard Version, is again that uh, this is a passive voice, which means they did not appoint themselves. They were appointed by another power. And in the context, it's God. The other context where this 
uh, ideas associated with it's God has appointed them. God has destined them for stumbling or disobedience or both. So how would we interpret that? Well, I think we ought to let Peter tell us how he would interpret it. And Peter, if we read his other statements, particularly in the book of Acts, definitely believes that God is sovereign over the sinful actions of men. We're still responsible. We're still accountable to God. Don't deny that truth either. But God is in ultimate control to accomplish His good will and His good purpose. And Peter understood this. And the, he showcased this theology when he talked about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The men who are involved in crucifying the Son of God. And I think we would all agree that would be the most wicked, evil act of disobedience and sin of all human history when the Jews actually crucified their own Messiah, the Son of God. There's nothing more evil and wicked than that. And yet, Peter clearly understood that they, the people who did that were destined to do that. We read this in Peter's own words back in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. When he said, this man, referring to Jesus Christ, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. So their actions of crucifying Jesus Christ was the predetermined plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God is not God looking down through the ages and seeing what's happened. No, He predetermined it. He foreknows it because He foreordained it would be the idea in this verse. But it's all determined, predetermined by God. And then again, in Acts chapter 4, Peter is speaking here again of the crucifixion of Christ. And he said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom ye anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do disobedient actions, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So the cross... And the means of crucifying the Lord was all predestined by God. So when you think about that, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, to this they were also appointed is probably their disobedience unto stumbling. Now remember, you have to balance this truth out with the other clear biblical truth that man, all men are born with a depraved and unbelieving heart and they naturally will disobey. They'll naturally turn away against Christ. Uh, God did not coerce them or force them to crucify Jesus. They crucified Jesus because they wanted to crucify Jesus. That was in their heart. So they are responsible and accountable for their own sinful choices even though it was still predetermined by God. You say, well, I don't understand how those two can fit together. Well, we all kind of struggle with that, but you can't deny one truth or the other. Both are taught in Scripture. Both are true. And just remember, you say, well, it's not fair if God destined them to unbelief, disobedience, and stumbling. 
not fair. Well, that's exactly what they deserve. That's exactly what their nature would dictate for them to do. And they will receive from God justice. Exactly what they deserve for their sin, their choices. And God is not obligated to show anybody mercy. But everybody gets exactly what they deserve. They get justice. Unless God shows them mercy. But God is not obligated to show anybody mercy. That's why Paul in Romans 9 says, quoting from the Old Testament, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So you end up with believers, those who believe in Christ as a cornerstone, and they will not be disappointed. And then you have the unbelievers who reject Christ. They stumble over Him. They take offense at Him. And ultimately, that's what all men will do by nature unless God changes their heart. And God is not obligated to change anybody's heart. God would be just if He allowed us all to live out our lives in our depraved, sinful, spiritually dead heart, and we would all be condemned, and God would be totally just in condemning the entire human race. It's not an issue of justice. It's not an issue of God's not fair if He chooses to save some, because if He shows mercy to some and they come to faith in Christ, that's by His mercy. He's not obligated to save anybody. It's not an issue of God being just or fair or unjust or unfair. No, the sinner gets justice. But we as sinners get mercy if we come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the two doctrines that are implied in this passage is number one, God is ultimately sovereign over all human sin, unbelief, disobedience, and stumbling. But we are still accountable we are still responsible. And Scripture does not resolve those two teachings in fine detail, but they both coexist. And we must not contradict either one of them or we'll fall into error. If you deny human responsibility, then you become a hyper-Calvinist. And suddenly, well, it doesn't matter if I obey God. It doesn't matter if I believe. It doesn't matter if I read my Bible. It doesn't matter because if God's already predetermined it, then there's nothing I can do. That is the wrong way to understand the Word of God. The Scriptures never allow you to go to that logical, in your mind, conclusion from that teaching. On the other hand, if you deny the sovereignty of God, then you have truncated the glory of God. And your God is so small compared to the God of the Bible. You have to hold to both truths in my understanding of the Word of God. So in conclusion, the Old Testament tells us that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. You say, well, I just don't understand the two, how they are both compatible. Well, you know what? God's mind is a little bit bigger than ours. And His ability to understand things is a little bit greater than ours. But if He revealed them both in Scripture, we have to believe them and just trust that they're both true and act accordingly. So the emphasis that Peter has made is that there's two responses to Jesus Christ. There's belief or there's unbelief. Those who, by the grace of God, understand their sin and they come to faith in Jesus Christ and they will not be disappointed. 
They will be forgiven of all their sins. They'll be given the hope of eternal glory. And Christ will be precious to them. And the preciousness of Christ grows in our heart as believer as I continually become aware and feel my own sinfulness today. And as a sinner, there are times when the Spirit of God makes me feel my sin more than at other times. And when I feel my sin, it's discouraging. But then I remember the cross of Christ. I remember the the price that He paid to save me from all my sins. And oh, how precious He is to me. How much more I'm motivated to love Him because I'm so unworthy. Even today I'm unworthy. But those who come to faith in Jesus Christ see Christ to some degree as precious to them. And the more they see their sin, the more precious Christ becomes. And those believers will not be disappointed. But those who do not believe, they will stand before God on the last day and they will be held responsible and accountable for every decision, every word, every act. And you will be disappointed when you are judged by Almighty God. If you are stumbling over Christ, repent of it. If you have not given Christ your life, you have placed your faith wholly in Him, come to Him. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to the living stone. He alone can make you a part of His kingdom and forgive you of your sins and make you a part of His temple and make you that holy priesthood. He alone can give you everlasting life. Come to Christ and be saved. And may He be choice and precious to your soul and to my soul as He is to the Father. So that's why Peter brings us down this path. Because he's writing to people he may not know. Some may be believers. Hopefully the majority are. Some may not. And he wants them to understand the consequences of their choice to choose Christ. So come and believe in Him because He will never let you down. And that's the hope of every believer today. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank You, Lord, for giving us Your only begotten Son, the precious Lord Jesus Christ. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among heaven given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And Father, we thank You for the gift of everlasting life that Jesus gives to those who put their faith and trust in Him. And Father, we would pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never come to grips with their own sinfulness, that You would convict their hearts that You would open their hearts as You open the heart of Lydia, that they might see their sin and respond to Jesus Christ by placing their trust totally in Him for salvation. Oh God, we thank You for the blessings that we have through faith in Christ. We thank You for all the glory that we have waiting for us because of what Christ has done. Oh Lord, help us even as believers to see how precious Jesus Christ is to our soul. And we ask this in His name. Amen.